We're running a special series about the worst incident of election violence in American history, an event that is almost forgotten today. It happened a century ago, on Election Day, 1920, in the town of Ocoee, Florida. The victims were hundreds of black residents. The perpetrators were their white neighbors. And the reason was that black citizens had gone to the polls and tried to vote. One hundred years ago, in the center of Florida, just a few miles from where Disney World stands today, there was an exodus. Hundreds of black families piled their children into wagons. They trudged all night along roads and railroad tracks and through sugarcane fields. They barely escaped with their lives. Dozens of their loved ones did not. They were lynched, shot, burned to death in the wreckage of their own homes. Today, this is forgotten, largely missing from history books, handed down only as a secret memory between generations of the families who escaped. But in 1920, that November night, the town of Ocoee, Florida, wasn't a secret. It made headlines around the world. There was a grand jury investigation, even a hearing before Congress, and Americans, black and white, knew exactly why it had happened. They knew what it meant. This exodus was a warning to any black citizen who dared to try to vote. I'm Eugene S. Robinson, and this is the Election Day Massacre from Aussie Media. In 2012, Randolph Bracey became the first representative from a new state house district in central Florida. Less than one-sixth of the members of the Florida House were black. I was looking for office space after I won my election, and I had recently moved to Ocoee, and I decided to put my office in Ocoee. Ocoee is just a dozen miles from Disney World, but it still has the feel of a small town. There's a pretty lake, a splash park for the kids, a beloved ice cream stand, the perfect place to live and work. And I remember there was an African-American woman, older woman, and she almost lost it when I told her I was moving my office to Ocoee. But she was from the age where she, the era, where she remembered that it was a sundown town where you couldn't be in Ocoee unless you had some business and you had to be gone before it dark. Bracey, now a Florida state senator, was shocked. But many people who live in the area longer are not. Historian Marvin Dunn is professor emeritus at Florida International University. He grew up in central Florida. My father uh, told us, told me and my brothers, about picking oranges in, in Okoi. Uh, when they would leave to come back to the land, if the driver, the white driver, lingered until um, uh, almost dark, they would walk out of Okoe rather than be caught there after dark. Okoe is a diverse community today, and it had a thriving black population long ago. But for half a century, Okoe had almost no black residents. But this was in the 90, late 90s, and they told me, please don't tell anyone that you're coming here, that we've invited you here, that we're showing you where the black communities used to be. 
Paul Ortiz is a professor of history at the University of Florida. Don't tell anyone because it could put your life in jeopardy. It could put us in jeopardy. There are good reasons why no black person want to live there for so many years. A Coe resident and community historian, Pamela Grady. You can see that's what happened there. You can feel that energy there. It's still, it's still alive and well. What happened in Ocoee a century ago remains the worst incident of Election Day violence in U.S. history. What happened in Ocoee was not an altercation. It was more than a lynching or a shooting or a riot. What happened in Ocoee was a massacre. And what happened is all too relevant today. Florida is still uh, actively involved in voter suppression. I didn't even get why she was so <laughs> scared for me. And then I kind of learned the history, and I think it's so appropriate to talk about it in this year's election because it is still to this day the bloodiest day in American political history, happened on a presidential election. One hundred years ago, African Americans in Florida were preparing for a historic election. Soldiers had come home after serving their country in World War I. The local economy was booming. Women had earned the right to vote. The promise of America seemed closer than ever before. And then, in a night of unspeakable violence, everything changed. There was no question who was in charge in Central Florida a century ago. Often, at the time, many of law enforcement and local politicians here were also members of the Ku Klux Klan. Pamela Schwartz is the chief curator of the Orange County Regional History Center in Orlando, Florida. One prominent white citizen at the time estimated that about 90% of law enforcement officers, judges, and lawyers in the Ocoee area were Klan members. There's a new rise in the Ku Klux Klan. Um, there's a resurgence of white supremacy. Uh, there's an active um, movement for white supremacists to try to disenfranchise black voters. In the days leading up to the election in November 1920, the KKK was especially active. There are marches throughout the state of Florida, Jacksonville, Daytona, Orlando, of Ku Klux Klan, sending that same message of, do not get out to vote if you are black or else. In Orlando, around 500 hooded men paraded behind three figures on horseback. They used megaphones to get their message out. Paul Ortiz is the author of Emancipation Betrayed, the hidden history of black organizing and white violence in Florida from Reconstruction to the bloody election of 1920. In Daytona, uh, the night before election day, they marched through Mary McCloy Bethune's campus, you know, and the, the municipal authority um, controlling the electricity actually cut electricity, you know, to Daytona Industrial Girls School so that the Klan could march through with their torches and terror tactics and, and act really scary. It's just all of this stuff is boiling and boiling and, and no, the events of November 2nd and 3rd send it over the top. This was an event hundreds of years in the making from the, the first enslavement here up through black codes and Jim Crow laws uh, and the suppression of, of women, the suppression of black voters, the, the suppression in all these different ways uh, leading up to, to something like this event erupting. 500 years ago, Florida was under Spanish rule. It was a sanctuary for slaves who were able to escape 
the British colonies. But after Florida came under the control of the United States in 1819, President Thomas Jefferson sent American troops to help capture former slaves and return them to their chains. Slavery ended with the Civil War, but segregation and ideas of white supremacy remained strong. Central Florida was especially attractive to former Confederates. Marvin Dunn is the author of A History of Florida Through Black Eyes. Central Florida was a, was a magnet for uh, people who had lost the Civil War. Because keep in mind, Florida was untouched by the war. Uh, and Central Florida provided the cattle that fed the Confederate Army. So businessmen in Central Florida made money during the war, while other parts of the South were being decimated by the war. By 1920, Florida's economy was booming. The citrus industry was exploding, so uh, a lot of black people were attracted into Central Florida for that reason to work. The town of Ocoee, with its lush orange groves and farms nestled along Stark Lake, was especially attractive. A number of black people, black men in particular, had um, managed to get property, orange groves on their own. There's a man by the name of Moses Norman. Now, Moses Norman had lived in this community for some 30 years. Uh, he was not just some, you know, young guy. He, he was a well-established individual, well-known in town. He had his own car. Uh, he was known to be a labor broker. Moses Norman, at the time, was driving around in a car that was worth about seventy-five dollars to $100,000. Pamela Grady is the executive director of the July Perry Foundation. That's a Mercedes. That's a Jaguar. You know, that's what he was driving around in at a time when nobody even had cars. There was only maybe one or two other cars in the whole town of Otoe. You know, and here's this black guy driving through <laughs> town in this nice car, you know, that had to infuriate them. The foundation is named for Mose Norman's good friend, another prominent black citizen of Okoe, Julius July Perry. Nothing really happened in Okoe without him. Florida State Senator Randolph Bracey. He was kind of like a broker for even white businessmen who wanted to come in and uh, do, do some farming uh, transactions or what have you. He, he ran the town. July Perry and Mose Norman were pillars of the Okoe community. Historian Paul Ortiz. They were, were successful individuals. They're very hard workers. They were, they're very good family men. Um, they were highly respected. And the reason I mentioned the term highly respected, and this is the most important element, I think, about Mose Norman and July Perry and why, why they represent such a threat to white supremacy. Because these two exceptionally respected men were involved in an exceptionally threatening activity, helping black citizens vote. In the wake of World War I, Black Floridians had organized a remarkable statewide voter registration movement. And the movement really crested and built momentum as African-American soldiers returned from, from Europe. A lot of Black residents came back to the South and they had served in Europe and they were not uh, going to accommodate themselves to the racism that was in their, in their communities. And Mose Norman and July Perry in particular were among those who came back with that attitude. The two veterans joined hundreds of other Floridians who were mobilizing to combat white supremacy in 1920. There is a huge black voter registration drive that's supported not only by the black community, but also by white Republicans. Not all of them, most of them. This was at a time when most African-Americans were members of Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party. In many places in the South, blacks could not even join the Democratic Party. 
And thanks to the 19th Amendment, women would be voting for president for the first time in 1920. This is a whole new voting block, and that includes Black women. And what it's doing is it's causing a lot of tension. People don't always accept change. Uh, and so with this, you also see sort of a resurgence and an ongoing rise with white supremacy in the Ku Klux Klan. Klan members were not the only white supremacists trying to hold back the new wave of black voters. Once the white, you know, white, white elites and white media and white leaders realize this is happening, they use their op-ed space, their, their banner headlines. White women, it's up to you to save the republic. This is the greatest crisis in our nation's history. And a typical op-ed will say, uh, white ladies, do you want your Negro washerwoman to lord over you, to take control? Do you want that Negro custodian to marry your daughter? The threats heated up as the election approached. White supremacy is in a crisis. They're much more honest than, than, than racist today because they're very blunt about it. They're like, white supremacy is our way of life as an American. Some white Republicans in Orlando, including a local judge named John Cheney, helped July Perry and Mose Norman organize black voters. About a month before the Ocoee massacre, they receive a letter from the Florida Ku Klux Klan, signed by the Ku Klux Klan, that basically says stop or else. Sir, while stopping in your beautiful little city this week, I was informed that you are in the habit of going out among the Negroes of Orlando and delivering lectures explaining to them how to assert their rights. The Grand Master of the Florida Ku Klux Klan reminded them what happened when white people tried to help black voters during Reconstruction. You will remember that these things forced the loyal citizens of the South to organize clans of determined men who pledged themselves to maintain white supremacy and to safeguard our women and children. We shall always enjoy white supremacy in this country, and he who interferes must face the consequences. So there is a threat. There is, and this is a, this is a primary source. We have the original in our museum collection. That, that, that states this, just days before the Ocoee massacre, there are marches throughout the state of Florida. If you ask a black person to register to vote in 1920 in Florida, you're asking them to take the risk, you're asking them to risk their lives. You're asking them to risk their livelihoods. You're asking them to risk their physical safety. On the morning of November 2nd, 1920, Black citizens of Ocoee, Florida, made a heroic decision. They ignored the Klan marches, the torches, the letters, and the threats. They prepared to exercise their most fundamental democratic right, to vote. They knew it would be challenging, but they had no idea of the horrors that awaited them. You can hear the Election Day Massacre miniseries. Just search for Flashback wherever you find your podcasts.